Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Being a homosexual was unthinkable, so you denied it. You found a girlfriend who was willing to settle for the sensitive type. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I don't give a damn if he's sick or well or dead or alive. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. You should be kissed and often, and by someone who knows how. And need to talk about more. Comes out the age of 21, and he's rich! I'm Anna Sale. And a few months ago, we asked you to tell us about your favorite short stories about death, sex, or money. You responded with more than 100 suggestions. If you're looking for some reading for your lazy summer days, we've got the full list of your picks on our website at deathsexmoney.org. We also used your favorite short stories as part of a live show at Symphony Space in New York City. We partnered with the radio show Selected Shorts back in January, and we wanted to share some of the highlights from that show with you. Like all Selected Shorts episodes, you'll hear actors reading the stories live on stage. But you'll also hear from the Death, Sex, and Money listeners who recommended both stories in this episode. Actress Kathleen Chalfont, who you might recognize from House of Cards or The Affair, was there. She channels a woman all too familiar with her husband's infidelity. But first, actor Sam Underwood reads a story by David Sedaris. It's about hitchhiking and the various sexual propositions that followed. Our listener Polly told us she was in tears when she first read this story. I love the story by David Sedaris called Road Trip because it is just so easy to picture in my mind every step of the story. And it's a story that made me laugh so hard that I cried every time I've read it. My fiancé and I laugh about this story all the time, and there are a few lines that we repeat to each other over and over. So I hope you guys enjoy it, too. Here's Sam Underwood. The house I grew up in is located in a subdivision. And when my family first arrived, the front yards were, if not completely bare, then at least close to it. It was my father who rallied the neighbors and initiated a campaign to plant maples along each side of the road. Holes were dug, saplings were delivered, and my sisters and I remarked that with the exception of birds, trees were the only things on earth that weren't cute when they were babies. (laughs) They looked like branches stuck in the ground. And I remember thinking that by the time they were fully grown, I would be old. And that's pretty much what happened. Throughout my teens and early 20s, I'd wondered if my father hadn't made a mistake and ordered pygmy maples, as if such a thing exists. During my 30s, they grew maybe three feet tops, but after that, their development was astonishing. The last time I saw them, they were actual trees, so tall that the upper branches on the left side of the road mingled with those on the right, forming a solid canopy of shade. This was a few years ago. I was in Raleigh for the night, and my father took me to a party hosted by one of his neighbors. I used to know everyone on our street, but since I'd left there, there'd been a lot of turnover. People die or move into condominiums. 
and their homes are sold to young married couples who scrap their earth-toned carpets and build islands in the kitchen. The interiors of these houses used to look the same, and eventually, as each is bought and remodeled, they'll look the same again, but in a different way. The party was held at what I thought of as the Rosenses, though that was two owners ago. The hostess was one of those new people, as were her guests, and it surprised me that my dad knew everyone's name. Here was Phil and Becky, Ashley and Dave, and a high-spirited 15-year-old who threw himself onto the sofa with a great flourish and referred to my father as a she. As in, Lucidaris, who invited her? (laughs) My son is gay, the boy's mother announced, as if none of us had figured this out yet. (laughs) He may have attended one of those magnet schools for the arts, but it still floored me that a ninth grader in Raleigh, North Carolina, on the street where I grew up, could comfortably identify himself as a homosexual. I felt like I... I felt like I was someone in a 10-pound leg brace meeting a beneficiary of the new polio vaccine. (laughs) She just happens to be my father, young man, and I'd appreciate it if you'd show her a little respect. Yes, ma'am. When I was this kid's age, you'd be burned alive for such talk. Being a homosexual was unthinkable, so you denied it. You found a girlfriend who was willing to settle for the sensitive type. (laughs) On dates, you'd remind her that sex before marriage was just that, sex, what dogs do in the front yard. This as opposed to making love, which was more what you were about. A true union of souls could take anywhere from eight to ten years to properly establish, but you you were willing to wait, and for this, mothers loved you. You sometimes discussed it with them over an iced tea, preferably on the back porch while your girlfriend's brother was mowing the lawn with his shirt off. I kept my secret to myself until I was 20 years old. And I might have kept it even longer had a couple not picked me up when I was hitchhiking one night. It was 1am, and the last thing I expected was a ride in a Cadillac. Stranger still was opening the back door and discovering that the people inside were old. My parents' age, at least. The car smelled of hair tonic. A CB radio crackled from its berth behind the steering wheel, and I wondered who they could be talking to at this time of night. Then I noticed that the woman was wearing a negligee. She leaned forward to press the cigarette lighter, and I could see a a tag the size of an index card showing through the sheer fabric at the back of her neck. We drove in silence for a mile or two before the man turned in his seat and asked, as if he were inquiring about my health, how'd you like to eat my wife's pussy? (laughs) Then the woman turned as well, and it was to her that I made my confession. I'm a homosexual. (laughs) I'd been waiting to unload this for as long as I could remember, and amid the screeching of tires and the violent swerve to the side of the road, I felt all the relief I'd imagined I would. (laughs) A few months later, I said the same thing to my best friend, Ronnie, who pretended to be surprised and then admitted she'd known all along. It's the way you run, she said. You you let your arms flop instead of holding them to the side. Work on your run, I wrote in my diary the following morning. 
At the age that most would consider their heyday, I had not had sex with anyone. My confessions did nothing to alter this situation, but for the first time in my life, I felt that somebody actually knew me. Three somebodies, to be exact. Two were roaming the highway in a Cadillac, doing God knows what with a CB radio, but the other was as close to me as my own skin, and I could now feel the undiluted pleasure of her company. Next on my list of people to tell was my former college roommate, Todd. I hitched from Raleigh to Kent, Ohio, but once I got there, the time didn't seem quite right. It was harder telling a guy than it was telling a girl, and harder still when you've taken too much acid and we're trying to keep the little people from sticking pins in your eyes. <laughs> After my failure in Ohio, I headed back south. It was early December, and I'd forgotten how cold it could get in the Midwest. Todd had suggested that I take his down jacket, but I thought it was unsightly. So here I was in a thrift shop overcoat that didn't even button all the way up. He'd also offered a sweater that belted at the waist. It was thick and patterned in bright colours, the sort of thing a peasant might wear while herding llamas. But, but I'd said, no, it might ruin my silhouette. That was the phrase I had used, and now I was paying for my vanity, because what difference could it have made? Oh, goodness, I can't possibly pick him up. He looks too lumpy. <laughs> I'd left Kent at eight in the morning, and the next five hours had taken me less than 50 miles. Now it was lunchtime, not that there was anywhere to buy it or anything much to buy it with. It began to rain, and... Just as I thought of turning back, a tow truck pulled over and the driver motioned for me to get in. He told me he wasn't going far, just 30 miles up the road, but I was grateful for the warmth and climbed into the passenger seat, determined to soak up as much of it as I possibly could. So, the man said after I settled in, where are you from? I pegged him to be somewhere between old and ancient, mid-40s maybe, with a grey-tinged sideburns shaped like boots. I told him I was from North Carolina, and he slapped his palm against the steering wheel. North Carolina? Now, there's a state for you. My brother and me went down there on vacation. Topsail Beach. I think it was. We, we said the time of our lives. When the man turned to address me, I noticed that his ears stuck out, and his forehead was divided almost in two by a vertical dent that started at the intersection of his eyebrows and ran to within an inch of his hairline. It was the type of thing associated with heavy, heavy fort, but this was so deep and painful looking that I thought it might have been left by a hatchet. <laughs> yes, sir, good old North Carolina, the man continued. NC, I guess you call it down there. He went on about the state's climate and the friendliness of its people, and then he looked into his side mirror to monitor the progress of an advancing 18-wheeler. All I know is that if anyone wanted to give me a blowjob or have me give him one, I'd do it. <laughs> this came out of nowhere. <laughs> and, and what threw me was the way he'd attached it to his previous observation. North Carolina is temperate and populated with well-meaning people. Therefore, I will engage with oral sex with another man. <laughs> well, I said... They're not all friendly. I remember one time I was walking down the street and a group of men grabbed me by the arms and spat in my face. This story was true, and at its mention, I recalled the stench of their sour, phlegm-clotted saliva. 
I expected, and reasonably so, that the tow truck driver might ask for details. Who are these men? Why did they spit in your face? But instead, he picked up where he'd left off. I mean to tell you that I would actually crouch down on this seat and perform fellatio. He said, either that or I'd sit up while someone performed it on me. I really would. Then another time, I told him, another time this guy threatened to knock my teeth down my throat. I was just standing there minding my own business, and all of a sudden, there he was. This was a lie, or or at least part of a lie. The man had threatened to knock my teeth down my throat, but only because my friend and I had given him the finger and called him a crusty old redneck. I was 12 years old at the time. I said, "In, in Ohio, you'd never threaten a kid like that, but down in North Carolina, it's par for the course. Par for the course. I was sounding more idiotic by the minute, not that it mattered. I mean, why not give someone a (laughs) blowjob? The driver said, it's just a penis, right? Probably no worse for you than smoking. (laughs) Outside, the moving truck were flat, barren fields, some just bordered by stands of trees and others stretching without interruption out to the horizon. One second they'd appear as a blur and then the windshield wiper would make its shuddering pass and everything would leap back into focus. A station wagon pulled in front of us and the children in the back seat signaled for my driver to blow his horn. He seemed not to notice them, and just as I thought to bring it to his attention, I realized that the request included the word blow, and so I let it drop and turned my attention back to the landscape. (laughs) Had I been able to address the real subject, I'd have told this man that I was saving myself for the right person. I wanted my first time to be special, meaning that I would know the other guy's name, and (laughs) I hoped his phone number. After sex, we would lie in each other's arms and review the events that had brought us to this point. I could not predict exactly what this conversation would sound like, but I had not imagined it to include such lines as, I knew this would happen five minutes after I got into your tow truck. (laughs) Not that I minded this man's profession. It was the other stuff that bothered me. His dent, his forwardness, his persistent refusal to turn the goddamn page. He sounded like what I sounded like when I wanted to get drugs off my friends. All I know is that if someone wants to get high or wants to watch while I smoke his dope, I'll do it. I really will. (laughs) I cringe to think of myself skeeving pot off my friends and believing that all the while I was sounding casual. After dropping in uninvited and basically forcing someone to share his drugs, I'd pocket the roach, take my leave, saying, that's the last time you... I let you fuck me up like this. I mean it. <laughs> yes, indeedy, the tow truck driver said. A little oral give and take would feel pretty good right about now. <laughs> I could have ended it so simply. I don't think my girlfriend would like it that much. I might have said, but I wanted to put that particular lie behind me. There was my life before I told a strange woman in a negligee that I was a homosexual, and now there would be my life after. Two chapters so dissimilar in style and content that they might have been written by different people. That's what I'd hoped. But of course, it wouldn't work out that way. I needed a story that I could live with, and so I compromised and told the tow truck driver that I had an ex-girlfriend. 
we just broke up a week ago, and now I'm going back home to win her back. So? <laughs> he said, I got an ex-wife. And a current one, too. But that doesn't mean it wouldn't feel good to give someone a blowjob or to have somebody give you one while you lay back and enjoyed it a little. Mine was the lie that got you nowhere. And as I berated myself for wasting it, the driver took his right hand off of the steering wheel and laid it on the seat between us. For a moment, it was idle. And then it began to lumber in my direction, its movement as hesitant and blocky as a turtle's. Yes, sirree, its owner said. There would come times in later years when I would have sex against my wishes. No one forced me, exactly. It wasn't that. I just wasn't sure how to say, go, get out. I, I don't want this. Often I'd feel sorry for the guy. He was deformed through no fault of his own. He bought all his clothes at Sears. <laughs> He said he loved me on the first date. Once or twice, I'd be too scared to say no, but this particular man didn't frighten me. I looked at him in much the same way that the, the 15-year-old, my father's neighbor, must have looked at me as a relic of an earlier era when trees were stubs, women could be deceived, and everything inside your home was the color of rust or dirt. <laughs> when the shambling hand at last reached my coat, I thought of how I'd assert myself and tell the driver that this was an excellent place for me to get out. What? He'd say. Here? You sure? The man would pull over and I would take my place by the side of the road, a virgin with three dollars in his pocket, and his whole life ahead of him. That was Road Trips by David Sedaris, read by Sam Underwood. You might have seen Sam on Dexter, Homeland, or on The Following. Coming up, actor Kathleen Chalfont reads the story of a wife who is equal parts furious and patient with her philandering husband. He loves women, even older ones. He loves to talk to them and make them feel good, and he loves to kiss them and be a little dangerous. He loves the melancholy of all that. It makes him feel so young. And he also loves me. He's not a bastard, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> hey, this is producer Katie Bishop. So my favorite part of my job is going through our email inbox. I love reading your emails. And I also love hearing your voices. And I want to just play a little bit of what we've been hearing from you over the past week since we asked for your stories about breakups. I was unceremoniously dumped. Oh. And it was horrible. She called me and said, we need to break it off. And I still get that feeling like, what the fuck? <laughs> breakups are hard. Friendship breakups certainly are as dismal as uh, any relationship breakup. Now I'm just trying to survive drowning in babies and weddings. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who sent in your stories so far. And we want to hear from more of you. What's your most memorable breakup? How did you get over it? How have you broken up with people? Are you breaking up with somebody right now and it's not going so well? Tell us about it. 
Record a voice memo or just send us an email to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next episode. I'm happy to inspire people to do something. I'm not very happy to be a generalized inspiration. You might have first heard Elizabeth Kaplis in our episode called When I Almost Died. It came out earlier this year. When we talked with her, Elizabeth had stage four cancer and she died in July. So in our next episode, we wanted to share parts of our conversation with her that you didn't get to hear the first time around. She talks with Anna about mental illness, money, and relationships. She does end up having to sort of take the tail end of stuff, like occasionally having to do the dishes when she'd rather not. Uh, I have a joke along the lines of my cancer card, which is when I pull out, though, but I I can't do the dishes. I have cancer. Um... This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale with a special episode we did in partnership with Selected Shorts from PRI. When we asked for your favorite short stories, we got recommendations from around the world, including one for a story that I really loved. Hi, Anna. My name is Emer. I'm 29, and I'm calling from Cork in Ireland. I suggested the story Until the Girl Died by Anne Enright, who's one of my favorite writers. I think the reason this story stayed with me is because of the narrator. Um, She's a woman in her 50s, and she's just so funny and so blunt and pragmatic about relationships. I also love how the story deals with communication in a long marriage and how there are certain things that we're probably better off not knowing about our partners. I'm so delighted that you picked this story, and I can't wait to hear the episode. Thank you so much. Bye. Actor Kathleen Chalfont reads Until the Girl Died by the Irish writer Anne Enright. The Girl Died 
Well, what was that to me? The girl died, and it was nothing to do with us, with either of us. She died the stupid way that people do in a car crash in Italy, where presumably she was driving on the wrong side of the road. (laughs) Silly twit. If the girl had not died, then she would not have mattered in the slightest. She would have been a lapse. My husband is prone to lapses, less often of late. But yes, once every couple of years, he does lapse. After the office parties, say, or traveling on business. I don't think he visits prostitutes. I mean, some men do. Some men must. Or... Quite a lot of men must, actually. (laughs) But my husband doesn't. And I know, I know, I would say that. I've thought about this a lot over the years. Things catch my eye in articles, in magazines. I have wondered what makes them go and what makes them stay. What do they want, men? It's a great mystery, isn't it? What men want and the damage they might do to get it. The things you read in the papers, oh, sure, they're all the same. Isn't that what your mother used to say? They're all the same. But they're not. They have their reasons, and they have their limits. They have their hearts, too. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt that my husband is not the kind of man to buy sex in the street. He likes intimacy. That's what he craves. My husband is the kind of man who will always look you in the eye. He loves women, even older ones. He loves to talk to them and make them feel good, and he loves to kiss them and be a little dangerous. He loves the melancholy of all that. It makes him feel so young. And he also loves me. He's not a bastard, that's what I'm saying. I am saying that he is a fantastic man. My husband is a fantastic man. And until the girl died beetling along in her little Renault Clio on the wrong side of a road in Tuscany, until the girl died, that was enough for me. To be married to a fantastic man who loved me and was prone once in a long while to a little lapse and a lot of Catholic guilt about it. Oh, the bloody bunch of flowers and the new coat in Richard Allen's sale. (laughs) Isn't it worth it, I used to say. (laughs) Isn't it bloody worth it for a trip to Brown Thomas's and a long weekend with the kids, all of us together in Ballybunion, walking the winter beach, a couple of bottles of wine, and more conjugal antics than is decent at our age? with my wonderful husband home again after his little lapse. Some over-ambitious young one who will shortly be fired. Thank you, darling. And no, I know you'll never do it again. But actually, I hated it. It was like living on a page of some horrible Sunday newspaper. Horrible people. Horrible people with their horrible sex lives and their horrible money. No. He works hard, my husband, and I have always been a great asset to him, and we are ordinary people, and I am proud of that, too. 
I can't say his name. Isn't that funny? It's quite an ordinary name. I say it 15 times a day. Mind you, he never calls me anything back. Isn't that the way of it? <laughs> what do men call their wives? Um, like every woman on the planet was christened Emily. Um, is that shirt clean? The girl was called, listen to this, Samantha. <laughs> Not that I knew this at the time. Not that I knew anything at the time. And she was only called Samantha because she died. If it hadn't been for the car crash, she would have been and always remained that young one in IT, or even that slapper over in IT. O'Connell Street might be full of slappers, but if one of them slaps off pissed in her miniskirt and high heels and gets herself run over, then she's what? She's a fine young woman who liked to wear white. <laughs> I'm sorry, but <laughs> the poor child who thought it was a laugh to sleep with my husband, and it is a laugh. God knows I've laughed enough myself. The poor child who thought it was a laugh to sleep with the father of my three children did something worse than all that. She went and died on him, too. She went and died on us all. Of course, I didn't have a clue. He came home. When I think about it, it must have been the day he heard the news. And he sat in the sofa... And for the first time since his mother's funeral, I saw him cry. The children saw him cry. I had no idea what he was crying for. I felt like calling an ambulance. <laughs> then I put two and two together and realized he must be lapsing again. He must be mid-lapse. And I panicked. I know that. I did panic, and it's not like me. He lifted his head to speak to me, and I said, I don't want to know. That was all. I don't want to know. And I said it really fast, like I was talking off the record here, like what was happening was not actually happening, or he'd better make bloody sure it wasn't happening because I wasn't having the mess of it all over my beautiful, hard-won house. And he pushed his face around to clear away the tears, not hot tears, not outraged, grief-stricken tears, just that leaky, worn-out water you find on your face sometimes when you are sick or defeated. He wiped the tears away, and then he just sat. My fantastic man. <clears throat> the first time it happened at a guess was when the children were small. I was up to my tonsils in nappies and mayhem, falling asleep before my head hit the pillow, fat as a fool. Anyway, they feel excluded fathers. Isn't that what the articles say? They have the weight of the world on their shoulders, and after a while, I'm, I'm convinced of this, they start to resent you, maybe even hate you. Then one day, they love you madly again, and you realize, slowly, you realize that they've been up to something. <laughs> they've had a fright. They've come running back home, which is nice, too, in a way. Oh, what the hell. 
The first time it happened, my father was in having some tests, actually. And I was far too busy to shout at my husband or go through his pockets or sniff his clothes before I put them in the washing machine. I had more important things on my mind. In the end, everything went so well. Daddy didn't even have to have chemo. After which, I was too relieved to double back and start shouting at my husband or sniffing at his clothes. It was over by then. And besides... I'd learned something about myself. I'd learned that I was not that sort of woman, the sniffing sort, the type to rage and scream. And that was an odd kind of feeling, I must say, because I grew up with the same dreams as every other girl, but when the chips were down, when the chips were down, I kept my head held high. What was I supposed to do? One part of me thought he deserved a holiday, to be honest, that if I had the chance, I might take one myself. (laughs) Another part of me thought, someone must die. I really thought I might kill someone for this. I might kill her, or I might kill him, or I might leave them to it and kill myself. Well, that's no use, is it? This um, stupidity, this incontinence of my husband's was too small to bother about, and it was too large to leave us all standing, all still alive. But maybe it was in my head from that time, in both our heads, the idea that someone must die. So, what are we looking at? Two or three more over the course of the years? a scattering of accidents, and then one day, this, whatever it is, a man crying on the sofa. Grief. It was half past five. The children were watching telly before tea. I cleared them out of there. My daughter, the apple of her father's eye, welling up a bit herself at the tragic look of him, with his coat thrown beside him and his briefcase still in the other hand. Kids bury that sort of stuff very deep. I thought it would be better if she talked about it, but when I asked her a week later about her father crying on the sofa, she just looked at me like I had landed in from outer space. What sofa? she said. Which sofa? That's Shauna for you, who is nine. There's no point talking to her brothers about it. They've already gone into the grunting phase. (laughs) And then I think, why not? Why not talk to your sons about things? Why not rear men who can speak? (laughs) Because there's my husband, collapsed against the oatmeal-colored linen mix, staring mortality in the face. And what else? His own smallness, looking as though he'd killed her himself, although he had not killed her. He had not even loved her, thinking, as I imagine, about some beautiful part of her, mangled by the door or bonnet and turning already to clay. (laughs) And there is no one he can talk to about this. No one at all. Men don't have friends like that. Guys, you might ring and say, take him out for a drink, talk it over, sort him out. 
No. The only friend he has is me. And he can't tell me because I really don't want to know. <laughs> All this in hindsight, of course. At the time, I looked at him and I thought that our marriage was finished or that he was finished. I was looking at extended sick leave and then what? My husband, crying on the sofa, was 49 years old. And if you think 49 is a tough station, try 55. I was looking at a long future with a man who had forgotten what he was for. So, when he pushes the tears off his face with his hand, and when he lifts his face to tell me all about it, there's only one thing I can say to him, and that is, I don't want to know. How did we get through the next week? Normally, I guess. That's how we did it. We got through the week in a completely normal way while I waited for some hint or clue. The back page of the paper that he stares at too hard and too long. And then on Tuesday morning, I come in from the school run and he's still there in his dark suit putting on his funeral tie. Who's dead? Some girl, he says. What girl? Someone's daughter? He doesn't answer. He brushes his shoulders off in the mirror. He says, we only get them trained and they're gone. Well, I'm sure she didn't mean to. <laughs> round and round goes the funeral tie, down through the knot, pull it tight, ease it a little loose again, kiss the wife goodbye. You don't want me to show, I say, because I'm raging now. I know what's happened now. I want to twist the knife. No, he says, she was only in the door. You sure? No, no. Pick up your briefcase, pull your phone off the charger, check for your keys. Home for tea, I say. What is it? I thought I'd grill a bit of salmon. Forget where your good coat is, open one door of the wardrobe, the other door of the wardrobe. Look to your wife who says it's under the stairs. Look your wife in the eye as she says this. Reach out to touch her neck and hair. Say, thanks. And then off you go. Oh, I know what you're thanking me for. The front door clicked shut on my husband in his funeral tie, and I wander downstairs to tidy away the breakfast things and make my usual cup of coffee. I fill the kettle and plug it in. I take out my mug and put it on the counter. And then, before the water is boiled, I have the recycling bin spilled all over the floor, and I'm going through the old newspapers for death notices. Samantha Sammy McHale, tragically abroad. Easy. I get out the phone book and look that up, too. The church is in Walkinston, so that's her family, off the Cromwell's Fort Road. She might have lived at home still at 24, price of everything these days. I could go there now if I wanted to. I could drive there in my little car. I wonder, do her parents know what she got up to? I have a shameful desire to tell them. So sharp, I have to stand still until it subsides. I am not that kind of person. No. <laughs> I make my cup of coffee and I calm down. 
Still, wonder what she looked like. What school did she go to? If they had pictures in the corridors of former girls in a row, the class of what year would she be? The class of 1998. So young. <laughs> Who could be that young? All the time I'm loading the dishwasher and pulling out the hoover and doing my morning round, the funeral is happening in my head. But I am not going to jump in the car and hack my way across town to Walkinston. I'm not that kind of person. Not going to panic at the last minute and show up at the cemetery to check the faces at the grave and pick up a few words here and there about what a fine girl she was, irrepressible, full of fun, bloody right she was full of fun. <laughs> Or not? <laughs> Maybe she was shy, unassuming, easily impressed. She might have been a quiet kind of girl, a girl who was anxious to please. No, I am not going to find this out or anything else, because that would be obscene. I am not going to show up like a ghost at the wedding. What's the opposite of that? Like a flesh and blood wife at this last dance with the dead. We had the salmon when he came home. Potatoes, bit of asparagus. Lovely, says my husband, delicious. Then he gets up afterward and makes himself a sausage sandwich cold from the fridge, butter, mayonnaise, the lot. And I say, why don't you stick some lard in there while you're out This is the last real thing I say to him for a long while. Where's the gas bill gone? When will you be home? Would you pick up Shauna from her ballet? We could do this forever. After a few weeks of it, my husband gets a nervous cough. He wonders if it could be lung cancer. His toe is numb. Isn't that a sign of MS? And I just say, get it checked out, because the girl is dead. So let's not bother with the fuss and foother of getting back together. Let's not do all that again. Not this time. This time, let us mourn. I'm too proud, I know that. And in my pride, I watched him, my fantastic, stupid man, lurch around in his life, and I did not offer him a helping hand. Where's the key to the shed? When will you be home? Would you buy a pack of plastic blades for the fly-mo? The girl was with us all the time, dead or alive. She was standing at the bus stop on the corner. She was sitting in our living room watching Big Brother. She was being buried night after night on the evening news. I think that milk's gone off. When will you be home? I really don't want the children having TV sets in their rooms. After a month of this, I looked at my husband and saw that he was old. It did not happen overnight. It happened over 30 nights or so. My husband shaking hands with death. And what else? Thinking about it. Thinking it wouldn't be so bad to be dead after all, like she was. Whenever I woke in the night, he was awake, too. Once I heard him crying again, this time in the shower. He thought the noise of the water would cover it. I listened to him snuffling and choking in the spray. 
and I realized it was time to put my pride away. It was time to call him back home. On Saturday, after the supermarket run, I put on my good coat and my leather gloves and a hat, even. My funeral hat. And my husband said, where are you off to? Because God knows I never go anywhere without drawing a map. I said, I'm going to visit a grave. I had a beautiful bunch of white lilies all wrapped up in cellophane. I picked them off the kitchen counter and walked past him. I cradled the lilies against my shoulder, and I walked past my husband, who was now old, and I did not look back as I went out the door. She did not matter to him. I know that. I know she did not matter. So I went to the cemetery and sought out her grave. I wandered through the headstones until I found her, and I put the lilies on the ground under which she lay, and I told her that she mattered. Then I went home and said to my husband, Then I went home and said to Kevin, let's do something for Easter. What do you think? Something nice. Where would you like to go? That was Until the Girl Died by Anne Enright. Kathleen Chalfont read it on stage. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios. The team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botine, Rick Kwan, and Andrew Dunn. Our interns are Carson Frame and Brandy Gonzalez. Special thanks to Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, Sarah Montague, and the whole Selected Shorts team at Symphony Space. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And go to our website at deathsexmoney.org to see the full list of the short stories you recommended. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.